Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. I saw John Cameron Mitchell's stage musical, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, at the Jane Street Theater in Lower Manhattan in 1999. It was one of those live theater experiences you sometimes hear people rave about after the fact, although it's easy to think they are exaggerating and roll your eyes rather than treat them seriously. In my case, though, Hedwig blew me away with its high-volume music, outsized central character, and the normalization of the capital Q queer, which I had previously applied only to non-heterosexual people and not to any of a number of folks living in proximity to the blurry spaces between traditional gender and sexuality norms. I was born on the other side of a town ripped in two. I made it over the great divide. Now I'm coming for you. Enemies and adversaries They try and tear me down You want me, baby? Central to Hedwig and the Angry Inch, both as a stage musical and movie, is the malleable identity of the lead character, Hansel Schmidt, played by Mitchell, who is the product of an American GI and a Berliner with Soviet sympathies, who raises her gay son on the Iron Curtain side of the Berlin Wall during the Cold War. In early adulthood, Hansel meets another GI, Luther, Maurice Dean Wint, who wishes to take Hansel to America but Hansel must first become a woman to marry Luther and earn an exit visa. He becomes she in a botched operation, whereupon Hansel moves to Kansas, the GI leaves with a new lover, and Hansel starts their life over again, this time as Hedwig, a masculine-seeming woman, or else a gay transvestite with mutilated genitals, i.e. the angry inch. My sex operation got botched My guardian angel fell asleep on the watch Now all I've got Hedwig eventually develops a relationship with a young man, Tommy, Michael Pitt. The pair write music that Tommy steals on his way to becoming a pop superstar, and Hedwig recounts this set of misadventures as the head of a rock band, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, then touring Middle America in one night stands at the Bilgewater's chain of failing restaurants, think Red Lobster, in the hope of confronting Tommy, both to receive credit for his, their music, and possibly earn an apology. And if you've got no other choice, you know you can follow my voice through the dark turns and noise of this wicked The stage for the off-Broadway show I watched in 1999 was bare, and the narrative action flowed from Hedwig's extended monologues between musical numbers with on-the-nose lyrics. Mitchell's interplay with the band set up many self-conscious and corny jokes, and the overall theme of becoming found a perfect corollary in Mitchell's tour-de-force lead performance scored by Stephen Trask's music. 
Hedwig and the Angry Inch, the movie, was released opposite Jurassic Park 3, directed by Joe Johnston in July 2001. The Jurassic Park tentpole franchise movie opened on 3,434 screens, costs $93 million to produce, and defines the sort of high-concept pavilion that nonetheless profited its studio, Universal Pictures, handsomely. In contrast, Hedwig earned $3.6 million against a reported budget in the $5 to $6 million range, and it was released in a platform style starting out on nine screens on its opening weekend, eventually peaking on Labor Day weekend with 101 screens, just before the national calamity of the 9-11 attacks put a crimp in public entertainment across the United States. Meaning, Hedwig lost a bunch of money, despite being provocative and unusual, even though it was brought to the marketplace by thoughtful people at Killer Films, who distributed their niche title under the guidance of New Line Cinema. Why? Why did this movie fail? Mitchell's source musical is brilliant on stage, but the movie is less brilliant for being canned in the way a lens and recording equipment sand down the rougher, livelier, more excited edges of all recorded performances. In other words, there is no genie in the bottle due to the refinements of post-production cutters and mixers who necessarily impact live musical performance through choices about lens-restricted images and faithfully balanced sound. Also, movie audiences, then and now, have seen a veritable bloom of queer philic movies and TV shows that were, in 2001, scattered hither and yon. Hedwig and the Angry Inch isn't nearly so shocking as it once was, although Hedwig's backstory of body mutilation remains powerful inasmuch as Hedwig is fully on display, honest, and exceedingly blunt. Then there is the set of tasks the movie Hedwig and the Angry Inch forces every viewer to manage. It's a backstage musical turned coming-of-age story turned vengeance parable about psychic coherence. It's also a non-conforming, break-the-fourth-wall direct address to us, the audience. And it's a slippery mix of tonal variation from dudgeon through euphoria, with confusion and amusement thrown in for good measure, all expressed through fantasy sequences, reenactments, animated illustrations, multiple soliloquies, and strangely affecting moments occasionally rendered through extreme close-up. Should a person see Hedwig and the Angry Inch? Should you? Only if you care about daring something willfully risky, unlike any nameable blockbuster, that leaves a person, you, humming about proudly becoming more than who you were, as in Hedwig's sing-along, Wig in a Box. Okay, everybody.
Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boobity-doo!